God, thank you for the, the beauty and power of those songs, uh, being able to gather as a church family in the middle of the week, reminded of your goodness and your power, uh, that we don't go through the week, we don't handle these situations that come in our path on our own strength, uh, we, we know what happens when we do. And so whether it is a family member who is, is very ill and, and facing death, or whether it's a situation like a hurricane approaching, in neither one of those situations, Father, uh, are we able to control them, where we don't come with anything other than dependence on you, uh, and God, we, our heart breaks for, uh, for Mike and Ryan and Stu and Debbie and their family and everything they're going through right now, and Father, thank you for the way that they use this as an opportunity to share about the good news of Christ, the hope and the victory that they have, and the faith they have in you, and God, thank you for the way that, that they seek to glorify you, and God, that you would sustain them during this time, uh, that you would draw us together as a church to be able to continue to love and care for them. We pray for the people along the Gulf Coast, and we pray for the people in Florida and the, the islands that have already been affected at this point. So many things, God, going on in our world, and we pray that you would use these to Remind us of your love and the hope that we can have, even, even in the midst of great difficulty. We all face different types of challenges during the week. They uh, don't always look like sickness. They don't always look like hurricanes, but, but we all face these challenges. And Father, I pray that we would turn to you in faith um, and that we would make every effort to proclaim and display Jesus through our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, Jim, come tell us uh, your story and how God's at work through, through this. All right, well, just to kind of give you a brief history about why in the world is Emmaus involved in a shower trailer ministry. Uh, kind of goes, it obviously goes back to the tornado. Uh, when we were able to use our building, we had shower trailers here. In fact, uh, Tara's dad got us the uh, Christian Farmers Association shower trailer. Uh, we had another little shower trailer, and we were able to host two to 300 volunteers here at Emmaus, staying the night, cooking for them with Samaritan's Purse and all of that. And you all full know, you know full well the ministry that took place because of just simply a shower trailer being able to be used here at our building. So um, we had some leftover funds after the tornado, and I approached uh, Preston Collins, our uh, union association director and just asked would would it we were trying to figure out what would be the best use of these funds and so I asked what if we looked at uh, building a shower trailer because I knew that we could continue to use that and and uh, it could be used in that I said could we build one and put it in the fleet for disaster relief and he said don't go build one he said run the one we got <laughs> so uh, so anyways, uh, that began how we utilize it. And just so you know, that shower trailer we use year-round. Uh, we've used it here at the building to host mission teams that are coming in, work with the children's home. This summer we hosted several groups uh, doing mission work in our community. Uh, just a great way for us to continue to minister and reach out in our community by hosting these groups that come in. Uh, and uh, so anyways, that's kind of how we've gotten involved in a shower trailer ministry, but its primary purpose is for disaster relief. Uh, so since uh, we've attained that, one of the things we've done is taken it down to 
uh, the park in Norman. Uh, we've only been able to do it one time, but uh, uh, providing showers for the homeless. We've taken it up to disaster relief in Laverne. We actually were there twice this last year with ice storms um, and, uh, and then the fires uh, that were up there. So it was up at Laverne for probably a good month and a half uh, earlier in the year. Took it out south of Elk City after the tornado there uh, for a mission team to come in and use and work in the Elk City area. So it's, it's utilized. It's a great resource for ministry, a great way to allow groups to be able to come in and use facilities like ours and to be able to go out and do ministry. Well, uh, obviously when the hurricane came, I thought there's a possibility this could be called out. And uh, in fact, uh, I think it was Monday night, last Monday night, they had Don Williams, who's the new director of disaster relief for Oklahoma. Uh, he was standing in front of the Coma Park shower trailer and they took off to Houston. Uh, and then the next morning at 8 o'clock, we got a phone call uh, to go to Dallas, and they were staging in Dallas at the Texas Baptist Men's Warehouse where they do all their disaster relief. So we met there with other groups, and that next Wednesday morning, they sent us all to, we were headed to the Houston Convention Center uh, to for feeding unit, taking two shower trailers and that, and they were, I think now they're housing 10,000 evacuees there at the Houston Convention Center. But on the way, uh, they called and asked me to go to uh, the Federal Emergency Management Team down in Texas City, which is down by Galveston. So, uh, and they asked, do you have generators and all of that because you're going into an area that's going to need it. And we had one on the trailer, but I got nervous, little faith, and I bought, stopped and bought another one. Uh, and, uh, and so, uh, anyways, we headed to a little city, or Texas City in uh, Texas there. Uh, and got there, uh, sat there for about an hour and a half waiting for them to determine if they needed it. They determined they didn't need it here. They needed it in El Campo, which is uh, east. It was going to be northeast, so I went back up into Houston uh, over to El Campo, and we sat there a night. They thought were there all of their federal emergency management people and first uh, responders were going to be flooded out, and so they wanted us there in case that happened, and uh, thankfully it didn't happen, and so we weren't needed there, so they sent us to Rosenberg, uh, and, and we worked with the highway patrol there, so there we were there two nights in Rosenberg, which is south uh, west Houston, and uh, the Brazos River is right there, so it was already flooding in areas there, and they were waiting for it to crest, so there were about 20 officers that were uh, working out of there, and then and then they had a, a shelter across the street with Army National Guard and uh, all of that. So we used it well uh, there and got to minister to them. Uh, just so you know, I uh, bought a meal from Emmaus for the highway patrolman there and just told them it's from our church, and we love them. We're praying for them and, and uh, fed them one night dinner, so fed about 20 highway patrolmen and uh, just had an opportunity to be able to listen to their stories because their homes were flooded out and and uh, just an opportunity to listen and pray for them. And uh, it was, it was a, I hate to say this, a fun time to just to be there for them because they're there for everybody else. Uh, the next day we determined that it was no longer going to ne be needed there because they were able to get back into where they needed to go. And um, so they sent uh, um, us back up to the Oklahoma team, which was in, in the Woodlands. And so they are now stationed at the Woodlands Church. Uh, Kerry Shook is the pastor there, and uh, so the Oklahoma team is there. The feeding unit's there. They can feed up to 25,000 people a day 
with the setup that they have there at the Woodlands. Um, so when we got there, they'd only had two showers available to them, and uh, when I got there, I could tell they needed the shower trailer. And uh, <coughs> it was a good thing because there's about 50 volunteers there. And so we set it up there, and we've been there ever since, and we're going to be with them during the duration uh, that they're there. So a team left uh, today. That team is coming back. And just so you know, a little bit, and, and I'm trying to understand this as well, the disaster relief is really s split up. Jim, you can help me with this. Uh, five different quadrants in the state, north, uh, northeast, southeast, northwest, southwest, and the central area. So each the northeast group was down there first. Uh, and I know the central team got called out yesterday, so they're going to leave next Wednesday uh, to be able to go. And I think it's the Northwest team that's there uh, starting today. Um, so anyways, they've got our state broken up into five quadrants. And those, so about 50 folks will go down. They're preparing meals. Uh, and those meals go out with uh, the Red Cross. And they're delivering these meals they're driving 200 miles to deliver these meals, and it's fun to hear the stories when they, they come back about where they were able to take those meals, first hot meal that people have been able to have and all that. That's how they're getting the, the meals out. And uh, I believe Red Cross pays for the food. Um, Oklahoma Baptists are cooking all of the food, and then they're helping to distribute it and all of that. So that's kind of how that works. It's a neat partnership that takes place. I used to kind of get frustrated with all that, and then I begin to understand, okay, well, this is how it's working. This is how it's helping. So Emmaus is uh, there. If you're interested in going and serving, uh, I want to invite you to, to come down. We've got a, uh, this is on the north side of Houston. We can get there in about six hours, six to seven hours. And uh, we'll, obviously you'll need a, a blow-up mattress or a cot. Uh, you're staying in like what you would be staying in our youth room. Uh, and uh, then the shower trailer is there. Uh, their meals, they've got those taken care of. So the only cost for anybody going to volunteer from Emmaus really would be your travel meals. That's, that's our goal is that's all it would cost you. Uh, we're running a church van back and forth. Um, and, uh, and just to let you know, too, if you think, well, the shower trailer doesn't really sound like, you know, that's not a whole lot, uh, we can work alongside the mud-out teams, and uh, they'll train us there on site that morning. And we can go out with mud-out teams if you're interested in doing that. So tomorrow morning we have four that are leaving. Uh, Sharon Shannon, uh, Bill and D.D. Pickle, and Mel Huffman are headed out in the morning at 7.30 to head down to Houston. James and Georgia Waterman are there now. They'll switch the van and they'll bring it back. Uh, so we've got a group going tomorrow. They'll be coming back Sunday. Uh, I do have a gap this next week, Sunday through Tuesday, if anybody's interested. Uh, but uh, if you're interested in uh, the mud out teams, uh, you can go and, and learn that and go and work mud out. So what I would say is there's all kinds of levels uh, if you want to be able to participate. And just so you know, some of the doors that opened, once we kind of got settled there at Woodlands, then my goal was, okay, how can I continue to get Emmaus engaged to be able to come down and serve? And uh, we worked with uh, Spring Baptist Church, which is 12 miles south of the Woodlands is where all the mud out teams will be working out of. Uh, I know Pastor Mark Estep, so talk to Mark and his staff, went to church there with them Sunday morning. And, and uh, this, morning, this afternoon I was talking to Jason, one of their staff members, and he said, uh, well, what I really need is an electrician. He said, I can't get one here and all this. And I said, uh, I've got one coming tomorrow. Mel Huffman's going to be there. And so Mel was a little nervous that he didn't have a license in Texas, but 
they didn't really care. <laughs> so uh, I know Mel can do it, and Mel, will, and Mel and Bill Pickle will do a great job. So it was kind of cool just how Lord provided in a small way there the right people at the right time to be able to go and serve. So Mel and them are going to go and help their church set up. A, they're basically setting up a laundry mat in one of their, uh, they have some off-site uh, classrooms uh, and doing that. So Mel and Bill are going to go help them do that. So it was really cool to see how uh, Lord just opened up that door for them to be able to go and serve. Uh, and, and then also, some of you may know uh, Rick Whitaker, who used to be the education minister over at First Moore. Um, and, and, and then Cinda called me about a friend of hers in Katy, Texas, First Baptist, or not First Baptist, Kingsland Baptist Church in Katy. And I tried to go over there, and their roads, a lot of them were still closed, and they're, they're bad off over there. But went to Katy, I mean, went to uh, Humble, Texas, where Rick Whitaker is. And they had, immediately, they have 165 homes that need to be mudded out. Their church was completely flooded. And uh, so got over there, and, and we were able to help set up a team from Henderson Hills uh, there with a the shower trailer uh, from Pittsburgh Association. It was just really cool to see how the Lord just kind of started to put pieces of the puzzle together. And so Mike Wall from Henderson Hills, he's going to be able to host teams working out of Humble to do mud out. We'll be able to help with spring and woodlands. And then once spring wasn't as heavily affected as what Humble was or Katie. So we'll continue to be able to approach those guys about how we can continue to help and all that. So basically all I'm saying is if you are interested in going, we'd love to have you go. Love to have you uh, be able to go and serve, and we will do our best to get you there, get you there as cheap as possible, just paying your travel meals, and uh, uh, love for Emmaus to be able to go to serve, to proclaim Christ, and just as what we've seen Pastor Owen praying about, we talked about praying for the uh, hurricane that's coming through Tampa, or possibly hitting Florida and all of that, that God would break our hearts and cause our hearts to turn to Him. And so here we have an opportunity, and you and I know this all too well, that in the midst of tragedy, God uses those things to turn people's hearts to Him. And may we be faithful in just simply proclaiming Him uh, to a lost and dying world, and through this tragedy that Emmaus would be able to live out that 2 Corinthians 4, 5 that Pastor Owen asked us to memorize uh, last, early last year, that what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. And, and, and just being able to, to do that. Uh, so pray that, uh, Emmaus, that we can just go. And whether that's in Houston, uh, right here in our own backyard, that we would be able to go and do as Christ has called us, all right? Let me, uh, let me pray for us, and then I'll turn it back over to Pastor Owen. Father, I pray that uh, you would just uh, humble our hearts. Uh, God, that we would just turn our hearts to you and allow you to be able to use us to be your hands and feet. God, I pray that you would go before us and that you would um, open doors for the gospel to be proclaimed. And God, that we would be able to see those, that we would be able to be faithful uh, in following uh, your direction. I thank you for this church family. I thank you for how you've used in the midst of tragedy in our past. God, how you continue to use things uh, like a shower trailer for us to be able to uh, make much of you. And God, I pray that uh, you would be with uh, the Houston area. I pray that you would be with uh, those who are concerned along the East Coast in Florida. Uh, Lord, we pray that uh, you would just um, 
allow people's hearts to be drawn to you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. (laughs) All right. If you'd like, uh, take that half sheet of paper that uh, was on the back table, if you got one of those. And then also, open your Bible to Titus chapter 1. Um, we're going to start in, in Titus 1 and then look at, look at a, couple of different, a couple of different passages together. So we're going through, going through a series this fall at the beginning on Wednesday nights that is related to the secret church presentation that David Platt puts on in the spring every year, and some people go to that. A lot of times it's too late or it just lasts too long to be able to be a part of, but they've taken all that information and put it online now, and so it's accessible at, at any point. So I think it's good to be able to take that, slow down, look at it over a certain number of weeks, and so that's what we're trying to do. And this time he was focusing on the Bible, and what sort of authority the Bible has in a world that's so full of skepticism. People are skeptical not only of authority figures in general, but people are just skeptical of religion. Uh, you have more and more people, when they're asked to list their religion, they'll, they'll check none. Uh, there was a time that you know people would pick at least one of the options, but a lot of times you have people picking none. It's just so skeptical of anybody who's talking about having a religious book or having religious beliefs, those type of things. So how do we respond to that? The first week we talked about how the Bible is a form of divine revelation, that it comes from God. And specifically when it comes from God, it comes with grace and truth. And that combination of God's revelation that he has shown grace to us, and at the same time he speaks truth, and that becomes very important tonight. Last week, we talked about the idea of inspiration. What does it mean that God's word is inspired, that it came through human authors? Real people in real places wrote real words on on a page, but it came by the power of God's spirit. Tonight, the focus is on what does it mean for the Bible to be true? If you're going to stake your life, oops, if you're going to stake your life on this book, if you're going to say, everything I do is defined by what's in here, it better be true. We, we would want to say we want to stake our life on something that is true. And so what do we mean when we say that Scripture is true? If you believe the Bible is not true, what are you saying in believing that the Bible is not true? How, how do we make sense of this? So we're going to look at Titus chapter 1 as a beginning point. Titus 1, starting in verse 1, it says, Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth which is according to godliness in the hope of eternal life which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago but at the proper time manifested even his word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior. So there on your page you see that there are three foundations for when we talk about the Bible being true. The first is that God himself is true. Titus 1 says God cannot lie. As God, he is truth. He represents all that is true. And so when he reveals himself, what he reveals is going to be true. So God is true. 
The Bible is the Word of God, so in the Scripture we have the Word of God coming from a God who is completely truthful, and so the Word of God is true. That's how that logic breaks down. God is true, the Bible is the Word of God, therefore the Word of God is true. Just for a second, so you'll make sense of this, substitute my name in there. Owen is true, but you would want to know, is he really? Like, is he really reliable? Does everything he say represent the truth? Can he completely be trusted? Then, this letter that came from Owen, this letter is Owen's word. It's his representation. He sent it to us. So, that letter must be true. If the person who sends it is trustworthy, reliable, then whatever they send to you is going to be trustworthy and reliable. It all hinges on that first part, though. Is God true? When we say, don't miss this, but when someone says the Bible is not true, by implication, you're saying that God is not speaking the truth. You're calling God a liar. Uh, Now, granted, you're not going to come right out in conversation initially with someone and say that, but we want to make sure we follow that logic backward. If you say that the Bible is not true, what are you saying about God? What are you saying about the claims that Jesus makes in the New Testament to be truth, that I'm the way, the truth, and the life? So as God, he is completely true. How do you come to know somebody is reliable? How do you come to know somebody is trustworthy? What do you think? Slightly an open-ended question. How do you come to know that somebody's reliable and, and trustworthy? Do what? By watching them? You watch their life? By experience? I think those are probably, you know, the, the primary. The more you're around somebody, the more you can determine, is this person reliable? Is this person truthful? You know the feeling when you receive a message from someone and you're not sure if that person is reliable or trustworthy. There's that moment in your mind you think, hmm, are they really telling me the truth? Are they, you go to the car lot. Sorry to pick on if you work at the car lot, but that's, that's a terrible that's a terrible example to use. But, you know, you go someplace and, you're, and you think, you look at that salesperson and you think, are they telling me the truth? Is this person reliable? What if you go to that car lot to pick on the car lot again? Or what if you go to the salesperson and you know that person? You have a relationship with that person. You're much more likely to trust them. You're most, much more likely to say, I believe this person is reliable. What I want you to see in this idea of understanding the Bible is truth is sometimes, in fact, many times, it takes people time to work their way into this doctrine. And this may be the truth, may, may it happen for you, maybe it happened differently. If you came, if you grew up in church and you were always told the Bible is true, maybe you've gone through life and you've never doubted that claim, in which case that's great. You've, you've always taken that on childlike faith. But there may have been times in your life that you began to think, you know, I'm not sure. Is the Bible really true, or, or is it not? Sometimes it takes experience with God's work in your life over and over and over, seeing him proven faithful, seeing him at work, and the more he becomes reliable, the more you see him as trustworthy, the more you see him, then you come to this point of saying, and what he's given us in his word is reliable, is trustworthy, is true. I say this in the sense that getting into an argument with someone about whether or not the Bible is true is of limited value. 
believing that the Bible is true is of ultimate value. But sometimes this is one of those doctrines you kind of have to live yourself into. You kind of have to work yourself into that the more you see God at work in your life, the more you say, the one who has saved me, the one who is gracious toward me, I come to believe that his word is completely true because I've experienced that power in, in my life. Now, do you want somebody to just have faith? Sure, but we realize life doesn't always work that way. Sometimes this is something you have to build toward. The implication is found in 2 Samuel 7, 28 that's on your, uh, on your page there. Now, O Lord, you are God, and your words are truth, and you have promised this good thing to your servant, that what we have from you is dependable, it's reliable. When you say the Bible is true, what you mean is it's trustworthy. I can trust that what I have here is something I can stake my life on. What are some common statements you hear in society about this? I believe the basic ideas of Scripture are true, but not necessarily every word. This is all over the place in our world, especially the part of the world we live in where people have a little bit of Bible, but not a whole bunch. Uh, they're okay with certain parts of the Bible being true, but not other parts of the Bible. What's the, re what's the response to this? What's the loving response to this statement right here? How would you reply to somebody who said, I believe the basic ideas of Scripture are true, but not necessarily every word? Sure, yeah, it, it's becoming, so the idea that the Scripture itself says it's true. So if that's the case, it's in a sense, believe, believe it all or believe none is, is kind of the way Scripture this is that idea that Jesus is either Lord, liar, or lunatic. You may have heard that before. Jesus doesn't really present himself as one option among many. Either he's truth, either he's the Lord of the universe, or he was a crazy man, or he was a liar. So scripture is similar. Um, you kind of take it all or you take it none. What's another response to this statement? I believe the basic ideas are true, but not necessarily every word. Yes, Ms. Phyllis? Yeah, and how would you know which part is true? You know, so if you say, well, this part is true, but this part is not, why? <laughs> what makes that part true and this other part over here false? And if this part is false, what if you're wrong about this part that's true? What if it's all messed up? Um, it, it's very difficult to pick and choose which part is true and which part is not. Uh, you find yourself in a situation where what it really comes down to on a personal level is, I accept as true the parts that I like or that I can handle or I can make sense of, and I deny the parts that either I don't like or I struggle with. That's really, at a personal level, in my own heart, that's what it would come, would come down to, and so it's difficult. Number two, the, or the, another statement, is this idea that you can't try to explain the word true like I'm going to do in a second. Either every part is literal, literal or it's not. You'll hear this idea of, of literal truth. Remember that the word literal doesn't equal the word true. Something is literal in the sense that it's presented in a straightforward way. Not all of Scripture is presented in the same way. It's all equally true, but to say it's all literally true doesn't take into account the way that God's Word is given to us. And so don't get pushed into a corner where someone forces you to say, well, it all has to be literally true, because they have an agenda at that point. They're trying to push you into a corner about a particular part of Scripture. 
Scripture is true as God has given it to us, and we're going to talk about that in a second. Next, I believe God is true, but the Bible does contain some errors. Well, we've already dealt with this statement earlier. How can you say that a book that says that God is true, therefore contains errors, but it's the word of It just doesn't work. Either God has given us his word or he hasn't. Um, fourth, inerrancy, this idea that the Bible is true, it has no falsehood. Inerrancy is a modern idea that early Christians didn't worry about this. Historically, that doesn't work out. You, you, because you see in the pages of Scripture a commitment to God's word being true. And you see Jesus committed to this. You see the early New Testament authors committed to this. And so this fight over the Bible being true is not a modern thing. It's existed for, for all of history that you would accept God's word as being true. Let's look at a couple of scriptures really quickly. Um, what do we learn from God's word about the truth of God's word? 2 Timothy 3. 2 Timothy 3. And most of these will be verses that we've looked at, we've looked at before related to, to Scripture. Specifically, what you're looking for here, what do we learn about the truth of the Bible when we read these verses? So focus on that idea of truth when you're, when you're reading these, these verses. So 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. What do you learn from those verses? What are the implications of God's word being true when you read those verses there in 2 Timothy 3? You're not going to see the word truth. You're going to have to kind of make application. What does it mean that God's word is true? in light of these verses. So it's inspired, yeah. What's the first word in the verse 16? Or all, <laughs> yeah. So all scripture is inspired by God, therefore how much of scripture is true? All, yeah. So you have the Bible saying about itself, all scripture is true. There's another word in there that really jumps out to me. It's that idea of teaching or reproof or correction. Uh, if you're going to stand up in front of people and start spouting religious things, you'd like to know that they were true, <laughs> that what you're speaking about, what you're teaching is true. You have those moments with your kids or grandkids uh, when you're, you're saying something to them and, and trying to really make a point, and about halfway through you start thinking to yourself, is this really right or not? But as the parent or authority figure, you really don't feel like you can back out of the assertion that, that you just made. So you just keep pressing forward, thinking in your mind, like, I'm not sure this is true or not, but I can't turn around at this point. Like, I've got I've to keep going so this feels, so this feels true. Um, in 2017, your kids can fact check you when they get older, uh, you know, just by, just by Googling. And so you're really put to the test as a parent to, this better be right, you know. Or you, you have a very argumentative kid, no matter what you say. They're trying to fact check you and determine, like, is what you're teaching me true? Is this actually right? Um, when we talk about Scripture, if you're going to stand up and teach and correct somebody, you want to know that what you're doing is not just your opinion, that, that it's the truth of God. So the keys here in these verses is the word all and the word teaching. All right, go to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 
verse 18. So back to, back to the beginning of the New Testament. You're getting back at Matthew 5.18. You're getting back into the, uh, into the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus gave there. Matthew gives us. Uh, so, so Matthew 5, I'll start in verse 17, but the focus is on verse 18. Um, it says, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. What do you learn about the truth of Scripture from that verse? Yeah, so two, two points here, and Jack has the first one. Down to the smallest detail, uh, not the smallest letter or stroke, not the smallest jot or tittle. So even the, even the uh, most detailed things matter. So that's the first thing that stands out. What's the other thing about the truth of Scripture? Yeah, so you see the way that fulfillment is happening. Jesus didn't come to get rid of the Old Testament Scriptures. He came to bring them to their fulfillment. Now that word fulfillment is going to be really important when we talk about the truth of Scripture, how it's all focused on Jesus. And I guess a third point, kind of thrown in there is shall not pass away. So scripture is always true. It's not true just at one particular time. Uh, and, and we battle, battle, that's kind of the wrong word, but we, we face this in the 21st century where people will say, well, that was true for then, but not for now. Well, this is the idea that if something's true and it's eternally true, it's going to apply to all cultures, all times. Uh, so the smallest detail, fulfilled in Jesus and not going to pass away. It's always true. All right, 2 Peter chapter 1. Let's turn over there. Uh, 2 Peter, you're getting deep into the New Testament. You're almost at the, at the very end. But if you go to 2 Peter chapter 1, and while you're turning to 2 Peter 1, this is a good, just if you're doing a Sunday school class or whatever you're doing, just a good Bible study exercise to take a particular theme and then ask the same question of multiple verses, uh, as long as they're, they're good core foundational questions, what does this passage teach me about God? What does this passage teach me about our relationship with one another? You can ask core questions and then you, you go to other passages and see, do we find recurring themes? Are we seeing things show up? So we're, we're asking the same question of all these different scriptures, trying to look for patterns, trying to look for ideas that stand out. Second Peter chapter one, uh, verse 20. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men, moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. What do we know about the truth of God's Word from, from 2 Peter 1? What stands out to you? What now? It comes from God, yeah. So it's not dependent on any particular person. Uh, we don't have a religious book that depends on one person's idea or one person's approach. Uh, this is another way that Christianity stands apart from other religions. Our religious book 
has not come from one key individual. You look at a lot of major world religions or religious groups, they have a religious book, but it goes back usually to one particular person giving a set of teachings or getting, giving these uh, dreams or something like that. Christianity is spread across. Uh, it's almost like it's God's way of protecting us from being attracted to one particular human idea. We don't follow Paul. We don't follow Cephas. We don't follow Apollo, like 1 Corinthians says. We give ourselves to the Lord, um, and he works through a lot of different people. Kind of democratizes uh, religion, Christianity, in a sense. It's not going back to one particular person. All right, let's look at one more. Revelation 22. When we say you're going to the end of the Bible at this point, you're really going to the last page. As the joke goes, just before the maps, um, if your Bible has maps. So Revelation 22 Last chapter in the Bible, we're going to look at verses 18 and 19. Revelation 22, 18, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book. What do you see about the truthfulness of Scripture from that verse? It's serious business. Yeah, I think that's one of the things you take away is it's serious that you would claim that this is not from God, that this is not God's Word. What else do you see there? Anything else about truthfulness that stands out to you? Yeah. You can't, you can't say the Bible's not true and then just go on with no, no consequences from that. It has effects on our life, it has effects on our church, it has effects on everything that we, we do, how we handle the Word of God. There's that temptation at times to say if we just changed a little bit of the Bible just so we could reach more people and be able to fit in, well, we know where that path leads. And, and that's, you've, you've set out on your own path at that point. And uh, like Susan said, there, there are consequences that come from that. So when we talk about Scripture being true, remember what we're going back to is, is it trustworthy? Is it reliable? Can you look at this and say, I know the one who gave this, and I know that he's reliable. I know he's trustworthy. I've come to have that confirmed in, in my life. Then, as you begin to talk about the truth of Scripture, how do we make sense of this? There's something that came out in 1978, uh, called the Chicago Statement on Inerrancy. Now, I've not printed this out for you because it's a rather long document, but on the back of your, your half sheet of paper, you've got the, the title of this. If you are interested in this topic of how do we understand the truthfulness of Scripture, the Chicago Statement on Inerrancy would be something that would be really interesting to, to spend some time with and look through. A group of scholars got together, and they said, if we're going to say that the Bible is completely true, we want to be able to explain this to people in such a way that they're able to understand it, make sense of it. What does it mean that Scripture is true? So the way this works is written out in about 19 different articles or sections, and each one has an affirmation and denial. So we affirm such and such about Scripture, but we deny that this is true. So let me show you a couple of examples um, up on the screen. What I've done on the back of your sheet is 
just giving you a few definitions, and they're listed in alphabetical order if, you're, if you ever need this as you go through. But here's kind of the way this works. So Article 1 says, we affirm that the Holy Scriptures are to be received as the authoritative Word of God. We deny that the Scriptures receive their authority from the church, tradition, or any other human source. So there's an affirmation that's made about the truthfulness of Scripture, and then a denial. So we have God's Word. The truth of God's Word doesn't come through any church group. It comes through the Bible. Article 2. Um, we affirm that the scriptures are the supreme written norm by which God binds the conscience and that the authority of the church is subordinate to that of the scriptures. So the church is not over the Bible. Uh, we deny, wait, that looks surprisingly like the, uh, the first one I put up there at the end. We deny that church creeds, counsel, or declarations have authority greater than or equal to the authority of the Bible. All right, go to number three. We affirm that the written word in its entirety is revelation given by God. We deny that the Bible is merely a witness to revelation or only becomes revelation in an encounter or depends on the responses of men for its validity. There was a, a very popular idea in the 20th century uh, that the Bible wasn't the word of God. It just contained the word of God. And so it it became the Word of God only as people encountered it. It wasn't already God's Word in some sense. It was all about an experience. It wasn't about an actual document. And so this is denying this. This is saying, no, the Bible as a document given to us by the authors is God's Word. Uh, number four, we affirm that God who made mankind in His image has used language as a means of revelation. God didn't communicate to us merely in nature. He gave us also his word, but we deny that human language is so limited that it's rendered inadequate as a vehicle for divine revelation. People will say things like, well, yeah, if God is so great, how could he ever communicate to us in human language? Well, not all of God can ever be captured in human language. We're not saying that. When you say the Bible is true, you're not saying, and it tells me everything that could ever be made known about God. We know God is much greater than that, but our use of language doesn't mean that we can't know something about him. Uh, never forget, just because you can't know everything about something doesn't mean you can't know something about it. Uh, you don't have to have exhaustive knowledge of something for it to be true. You just have to have sufficient, sufficient knowledge. Um, and, and so that's an important distinction. Number five, we affirm that God's revelation within the Holy Scriptures was progressive. And this is where that Matthew 5 comes in. We deny that later revelation, which may fulfill earlier revelation, ever corrects or contradicts it. We further deny that any revelation has been given since the completion of the New Testament writings. So what comes in the New Testament can't contradict what came in the Old Testament, but provides a fulfillment. We may learn more. We may, people say, well, I don't see the, the idea of uh, the Trinity or something like that in the Old Testament. Well, some of that is given progressively. It's not shown all at one time. And that last phrase is important. There's been no new revelation given since the New Testament writings. So what we have is the Word of God is contained in Scripture. Uh, we've got time for a couple more. Let's look at number eight. Article eight. We affirm that God, in his work of inspiration, utilized the distinctive personalities and literary styles of the writers whom he had chosen and prepared. We deny that God, in causing these writers to use their very words, overrode their personalities. Um, in the Bible, you have something like, Proverbs in the Old Testament and something like Galatians in the New Testament, everybody has their own personality. It comes through in, in that. These are different people writing at different times, different audiences, and so that's part of God's inspiration. Uh, 
what else is important in the time we have? Um, go down to uh, 12. Go to, go to Article 12. We affirm that Scripture in its entirety is inerrant, being free from all falsehood, fraud, or deceit. We deny that these are limited to spiritual, religious, or redemptive themes, exclusive of assertions in the fields of history and science. We further deny that scientific hypotheses may properly be used to overturn the teaching of Scripture on creation and the flood. It's common to say the Bible is true about salvation, but it's not true in these other ways. Well, you're kind of back around to the idea of how can it be true in one part and not true in, in another part? Let's look at uh, thir- uh, yeah, let's look at 13. 13 is a really important one in here. Sorry the print gets small at this point, but we affirm the propriety of using inerrancy as a theological term. We deny that it's proper to evaluate Scripture according to standards of truth and error that are, error that are alien to its usage or purpose. My personal uh, opinion, Article 13 is the most important, um, and it's also the smallest print, so I apologize. But we further deny that errancy is negated by biblical phenomena such as lack of modern technical precision, irregularities of grammar or spelling, observational descriptions of nature, reporting of falsehoods, use of hyperbole and round numbers, topical arrangement of material. This is where people get into the weeds and start saying, well, look, that word is spelled incorrectly, therefore it's obvious that the Bible's not true. Well, that's a lesson in missing the point. Um, or something will have really grand language or will use, use a number that doesn't look exactly the precise. Scripture is true as it was given to that original audience. If they would have understood that as trustworthy and reliable, then it doesn't negate the truth of Scripture. Uh, this is where you don't let somebody push into a corner about it being literally true. Uh, it's true as it was given to that original audience. Would, and to say it again, just so we can end with this, would they have understood it as reliable and trustworthy? When we say that Scripture is true, that's the core issue. Can I bank my life on it? How do I know that? An element of that is by faith. An element of that is by experience. Some of that comes as God just works in your life. And some of that comes as you do research. And you begin to see more and more of how Scripture is shown to be accurate through history and archaeology and all these other things. And then you'll see these random reports that show up in the newspaper that look like breaking psychological, sociological science. And you'll think to yourself, ah, that's been in the Bible all along. And then, you know, modern research is just now catching up to it. There are moments like that, and that truthfulness of Scripture is confirmed. So what I hope you'll come away with is this is a doctrine that your friends and family, coworkers, they will likely have to live themselves into. They'll have to work themselves into. But you have a foundation for knowing, yes, I can trust God. And I don't want to say one part's true and not another part. It's, it's all true because it all comes from him. So, All right, let's pray, and, and we'll wrap up. Father, thank you for the chance to, uh, to hear tonight from Jim about the way that you're working through our church family. Thank you for the chance to sing together, uh, to eat together, and just have that time of sharing. Uh, God, we thank you for the ministry that happens with our preschoolers and kids and students And Father, as we come together, we know that we're not coming because we want to hear anybody's opinion. We're not coming because we need something to fill up our schedule. We don't need religious boxes to check. We're coming because you are trustworthy and reliable and good and faithful, and we desperately need your work in our lives. 
And so, Father, I pray that we would turn to you, we would turn to your word, and that you would guide us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.